3: At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to the weirdest thing I learned this week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman.
1: I'm Chelsea B. Coombs. I'm Rachel E. Gross.
3: Rachel, welcome to the show. Oh, my gosh, I'm so glad to finally be here with you. I think this is the first time we've had a second Rachel on the show, actually. I don't recall another instance. So, And I intend to be the last. <laughs> there can usually only be one, but uh, listeners, Rachel Gross is so fantastic that occasionally I say, let there be two. Um, Rachel, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the awesome work you do? Um.
1: Yeah, Sure. Uh, So I write mostly about gender um, and bias in science, and that often means following around scientists who are um, kind of new voices in their field. So like women of color, LGBTQ scientists, um, sometimes just the first woman scientists in their field and the new ideas and questions that they're bringing uh, and how they're helping us fill in all these knowledge gaps. Um, so my uh, biggest project so far was I recently wrote a book called Vagina Obscura, An Anatomical Voyage. And it's and it- so good. Stop. That means a lot coming from you. <laughs> and it's it's like a journey to the center of the, quote, female body that um, kind of goes organ by organ and traces the scientists who are rethinking how these organs work and their importance to your health.
3: Amazing. Yeah, we will definitely be linking to that in the show notes and highly recommend that our listeners check it out. And uh, Tulsi, it's been a while since you've been on the show. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back. Amazing. All right, let's get into it. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, etc., and then decide which one we absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Chelsea, what's your tease?
0: My tease is that lubrication is why chocolate feels so good on your tongue. (laughs) Yes, I did make that really sexual. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm intrigued. <laughs> I'm I'm intrigued.
1: A little turned I,
3: on. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I went there. Sorry. I, I'm, the I'm problem, here for it's it. <laughs> uh, Rachel,
1: what's your tease? My tease is that contrary to what you may have heard in sex ed or biology class, actually, human ovaries can probably make new eggs. And uh, the reason why has to do with chickens.
3: Amazing. We love a chicken fact on Weirdest Thing. Um, (laughs) Even better when it involves sexual health and debunking nasty old science. I I know we're big fans of this. Um, Okay, my teeth, not sexy. Um, (laughs) I mean, you know. Or change. No judgment, if if, if it is. Uh, My teeth is sad. I want to talk about... Why there is a German word for a bird with an arrow stuck through its neck. Um, Whoa. Great. I'm it's here diversity. for it. Hey, and the bird
0: theme on point? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. Sex and birds. That's
3: what this episode should be called. That, oh. That's all we ever do on here. Subscribe. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where shall we begin? Um, I'm so drawn in. Uh, mystified, intrigued by the chocolate lubrication connection <laughs> that I would love to begin with that, Chelsea, if you don't mind.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Because this study just came out like literally yesterday. I was just like looking around um, for some food science kind of stuff. I don't know. It was kind of interesting. But um, so when we eat chocolate, Most of us aren't really thinking about like physics or materials science. You know, we're kind of just eating chocolate, right? (laughs) But there's actually a reason why chocolates melt in your mouth sensation feels so good and it's all about lubrication.
3: Which I know I like I literally wrote a whole book about sex and I just like (laughs) lubrication is just a bridge too far for me. Yeah, the lube.
0: Yeah, no, I wanted to say lube a few times, but I was like, I don't think that's like super profesh. So, you know, I don't think that I the mean, engineers... you know who you're
1: talking to here.
0: That's true. That's true, right? Like, I guess I should, I, I know my audience, right? But <laughs> I can see it on
3: Candy Wrappers now. Just lube your tongue right up. Yep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I do wonder why lube feels less profesh. It's like clit and clitoris, like saying right. just easier to say.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. They didn't use the word lube in the paper, <laughs> which is surprising
1: well, because they should enough. have. We're going to make lube happen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this paper was, like I said, it was published yesterday. So we're recording this in January 2023. Um, it was published in ACS Applied Materials and Interfaces, which clearly is just, you know, popular Light journal here. Yeah, I love it. Um, so researchers from the University of Leeds, they created a 3D artificial tongue surface and they used techniques from a field of engineering called tribology to better understand the reason for chocolate's specific mouthfeel, which mouthfeel is the worst word ever. So I'm so sorry. <laughs> it is. Lube and mouthfeel. mouthfeel. We're, we're going for it today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, tribology is basically the study of how surfaces interact with each other while they're in motion, and how friction and lubrication affect them. Oh, that is so, kind of sexy. That's right. It's a, a sexy Ooh, meal. Tribology. You know, let's let's talk about tribology, baby. Um, <laughs> so, so when you put chocolate on your tongue, which I'm sure the people listening probably have. Um, It starts out as a solid, but then it transforms into a liquid as it kind of like melts and, you know, melds around with, you know, your spit and everything. Mm -hmm. And the researchers actually broke it down even further into three stages of mouth chocolate interactions. The licking stage, when the solid chocolate first hits the tongue, the molten chocolate slash initial mastication phase when the chocolate melts from solid to liquid, but there's not much spit mixed in yet. To finally, the bolus before swallowing stage, when the chocolate is mixed with spit and swallowed. And bolus, by the way, um, this this is the vocabulary episode, apparently, but a bolus is a small rounded mass of a substance, especially of chewed food at the moment of swallowing. So, you know, we're all learning so many new words today. Um, So, getting back to kind of, like, the actual experiment, to find out how chocolate interacts with your tongue, they used dark chocolate, which, good choice, just to begin with, um, as well as a human-like spit recipe made from pig spit, and they created both a singular artificial papillae, which is the little, you know, rough spots on your tongue, or if you have a cat, you know, the cat's rough spot on their tongue— um, as well as an artificial human tongue that they could monitor with a microscope. And I love how they actually described this artificial tongue, saying that it emulates the topography, deformability, and wetability of a real human tongue surface. It's everything you need. <laughs> yeah. Wettability. I've never heard that word, but I'm using it now. Absolutely. So... What they found is that chocolate actually releases a fatty film, which is the lubrication, that mixes with your spit to coat your tongue and your mouth. But the really interesting thing is that it's the fat layer on the outside layer of the chocolate that contributes to chocolate's mouthfeel and not the fat that's on the inside of the bar. So you might be like, who cares? <laughs> like, I'm I'm just hungry. Yeah. I just want to eat some chocolate. But... This is great news for all of us because the researchers are hoping that this science could help food scientists develop multi layered chocolate that's better for you by reducing the fat on the inside of the chocolate, but keeping it in the outside. So when it actually comes in contact with your tongue, it still feels like chocolate. So, yeah, lube, chocolate, wettability, bolus. You know. it should have been
1: a snacks episode. I feel like we all needed to bring a chocolate bar so we could experience <laughs> this in real time. Even, I,
0: Yeah, I will say I um, as I was like researching this, I had like a lint truffle. So, you know, because I just really wanted to make sure that,
1: you <laughs> that know, was, yeah, you that, you that I was experiencing.
0: Yourself. Trust, yeah. yeah, it's an important
1: part of research. Mm. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Exactly. So, yeah. But Let- let's hope that this luby chocolate uh, ends up on shelves soon. Amazing.
3: I um I edited a profile for an issue of PopSci um, that I'll make sure we link to on PopSci.com/weird. That was uh, talking to a candy scientist, um, and it was so cool. Uh, her job is so cool, and so much of what she does. She specifically she does a lot, but one of her specialties is working on like weird flavor combos for. Uh, Hershey products like Kit Kat etc and so much of it is like it's easy to come up with an interesting new flavor combo especially when new just means like it's not sold in mainstream candy bars in the U.S. right there are many flavors out there in the world that you could put in a candy bar but so much of the issue is like how does this interact with the fats with like the cookie inside You need to make sure that all of the ingredients that go into creating the flavor experience, like, don't mess with the very quintessential important mouthfeel, sorry, (laughs) Um, (laughs) these, like, quintessential Hershey's products, and that then they won't, like, degrade on the shelf in a way that messes with that, too. So it's, like, so much of it is about, like, moisture movement and fat movement. It's so complicated. And, like, thanks. God, for scientists who's right their lives figuring that out. I'm just feeling very grateful right now. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all
0: should. I mean, like, what a cool field, like food science, just generally, and like being able to figure out how to make something actually work and manufacture it too. Like, that's a whole other side of the story, right? So cool to me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to need some chocolate later today. Um, Luckily, I definitely have some, (laughs) so (laughs) it's all good. Crisis averted. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with some more facts.
2: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find
3: Okay, we're back, and uh, I'm going to go into my fact, which is about why there is a German word for a bird with an arrow stuck through its neck. Uh, I love science. Uh, So in 1822, this white stork flew by a northern German estate, and it had uh, a rather shocking passenger in tow. It had a two and a half foot spear sticking through its neck, and actually I'm going to pause and drop a link to a picture for my co-host because I feel like it's very silly for me to keep talking about this without um, you seeing this amazing bird, so. I must see this, like a spear also. It's like yeah.
0: very <laughs> evocative, this image right now. Quite mythical, uh, <laughs>
1: we've all that That's been how I want to go
0: out. Yeah, I, I want to go out like with a spear
1: through my neck. Instead of just hunched over my computer, passed see. out from, like, yeah. internet exposure. <laughs>
3: um, I have to say, I'm not sure that's how I want to go, but I do really sure. respect these birds. Okay, here's... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's Damn. dramatic. You know, will... I hope
1: that spear was lubed. Sorry.
3: <laughs> well, link on popside.com slash weird. But, yeah, these... Um, It was really just, just through its neck. Um... The wound didn't seem to have bothered it much, though, because it had carried the weapon all the way from Africa, uh, (laughs) which is why we care. Uh, The (laughs) bird, which after all that, by the way, was shot out of the sky and stuff, which seems extremely unfair.
1: Yeah,
0: Um,
3: (laughs) it's been through so much. It's a survivor. It's a hero. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) The bird uh, was dubbed a fire an arrow stork literally means an arrow stork. And when they examined the weapon that had impaled it, uh, they saw that it was made of, quote, Central African wood and similar in design to weapons used in Central Africa. I know that that is a ridiculously large generalization to make, but this was 1822 in Germany, and that is the generalization they made. Uh, This wasn't just shocking because it meant the bird had flown thousands of miles with an arrow through its neck. But in fact, the very idea that a stork might spend time on another continent uh, was was pretty big news, or at least the confirmation of it was pretty big news. Because at this time, at least among Europeans, the fact that birds disappeared for part of the year was considered a pretty big mystery. (laughs) Uh, They didn't know that the birds were migrating, generally speaking. I'll get into some more detail in a minute. But basically, they didn't know the birds were migrating. Um, So an appearance of a local bird that carried proof of having recently been on a different continent um, also provided the best evidence to date that birds migrated. And side note here, just to emphasize that while European science, such as it was from the beginning of recorded history to the 1800s, Uh, couldn't seem to really wrap their heads around migration, there were definitely people and cultures that totally knew how migration worked, at least to some extent. There are indigenous folktales that involve references to migrating geese flying off for the winter. Uh, There are some Polynesian myths involving birds traveling long distances as well, which makes a lot of sense because so many Polynesian explorers were island hopping themselves thousands of years ago. So they would have had a a much better chance of, like, spotting a bird mid-migration than, like, Aristotle would have. (laughs) Aristotle, for what it's worth, described some short-range migrations around the Mediterranean, like, as he and people he knew observed them. But he hypothesized that uh, some birds might go to the edges of the Earth to do an annual battle with the humans who lived there. For some reason. Oh, yeah. Um, Most badass
0: birds ever. <laughs> some Lord of the Rings shit. Yeah. Those it bites like... the spear.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah. Uh, but he also thought that some birds, like swallows, uh, hibernated in muddy lake beds. This was like a pretty common concept that they like clumped together and like curled themselves up in little balls and just like dropped to the bottom of a lake bed <laughs> and would like wriggle back up. That would be um, awesome. Like, like turtle style, really. Yeah. Others, he thought, turned into entirely different kinds of birds, like caterpillars turning into butterflies, which it's easy to make fun of now. But also, like, listen, if a caterpillar can turn into a butterfly and you, like, don't have, like, microscopes or, like, cell theory, like, it's not that wild to be like, this flying thing disappears and then these other flying things show up so this must just be the next part of its life cycle and yeah that's what honestly, he thought like deductive reasoning yeah. yeah yeah yeah
0: i'm just like imagining like all these europeans being like where did the bird go <laughs> <laughs> i can't <laughs> find them <laughs> like <laughs> it's just, the you know, the like neck. it's like a reverse alfred hitchcock <laughs> situation <laughs> <laughs> so. oh my god
3: absolutely i think that's pretty uh pretty accurate um, and those beliefs, uh, were still circulating in the, uh, like the turn of the 17th into the 18th century, uh, which is when a scholar named Charles Morton wrote a pamphlet arguing that storks disappeared because they flew to the moon. Um, now again, very easy to laugh at this now, but, um, keep in mind that at the time uh no one knew that like the earth had an atmosphere and the moon lacked one uh so it was just kind of commonly assumed that stuff probably lived up there and on um other uh celestial bodies that people were able to see and uh birds could fly so maybe they lived there too he uh, proposed that it took them a month to fly to the moon um and that very they very generous used... <laughs> yeah um and what's interesting about morton is that his logic was actually really sound same for his choice of destination because he was pointing out that like birds left when there wasn't food for them during winter so he was like they have these fat reserves they probably just like coast to the moon for a month and they like eat some moon food and then they come back home the moon Um, is
1: well known for being made of cheese so i'm sure they were able to plump up come back and I know there was a period of time where we thought there were moon men and moon monkeys. There oh, totally. Like a, there was a famous hoax where there were headlines uh, and it was actually like a sci-fi article.
3: Yeah. So well, we've talked about on a, a previous episode of Weirdest Thing how PopSci um, in its early days had articles about um, how the moon was probably home to a bunch of crab-like organisms and how Mars was probably full of beavers. So, it was just very normal for people to be like, who knows what lives up there? And honestly, given the available information, it wasn't actually absurd for them to do that. Um, yeah. That Incredible. being said, like Occam's razor, like simplest answer, <laughs> usually the correct one. Uh, and I don't know why he picked the moon and not just like somewhere else on our planet. But yeah.
0: I don't know. I applaud the creativity uh, points for that. Um, You know, I... So close. Wow. (laughs) I want whatever drugs they were on. You know, thinking about this kind of stuff, right? Like, how do you come up with this? A lot of black (laughs)
3: parties. You know. So, by the late 1700s, um, reports of flocks of birds being seen flying to different areas by sea captains made people be like, oh, um, maybe they just fly somewhere else for a while. (laughs) That that (laughs) could possibly be it. But it was still just like, (laughs) who can say? (laughs) Um, According to uh, Don James Audubon, uh, who, by the way, made a lot of stuff up, I have learned from my friends who are really into birding. Um, In 1802, he said he tied silver string to the legs of some nestlings and was unable to recognize them when they came back from the moon or wherever they had gone. (laughs) But uh, apparently, according to recent uh, research, he was actually in France at the time when those birds would have been returning to North America from Point South. So that probably didn't happen. Um, But anyway, it was considered like basically impossible to prove when or how migration was happening, if that was a thing. Uh, And around the same time that Audubon supposedly did this tagging research, just to like make it clear sort of um, how basic these inquiries were, scientific inquiries around the question of migration, around the same time that Audubon supposedly did his tagging experiments, other researchers were literally just trying to prove that if you kept a swallow from leaving England and like kept it warm and well fed, it wouldn't like go to sleep all winter, or disappear, or die, or turn into another bird. They were literally just like keep at, eyes on the swallow, <laughs> <Let's> see what <laughs> happens. <laughs> and I love that. It's good. That's good. It's science. It's good science. It's good yeah. science. Um, and sure enough, they were like, yeah, the bur- the swallow stayed swallowed. <laughs> so so probably.
1: Well, a watched pot never boils.
3: So <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. They're like, um, it's like gremlins, you know? <laughs> uh, now, one especially fun thing about the stock in particular is that folks say some 25 of them have been recorded, like 25 storks with arrows migrating from the place where they got shot with the arrow to a very different place. I will say that I tried to trace that number back to its source And uh, I got to a 2003 newsletter in German from the University of Rostock, which is the institution that studied and taxidermied the infamous bird in 1822. And they basically said, you know, a professor told us this has happened with 25 birds. You know, I I don't know if maybe he was playing a little fast and loose. I did then find an English language review of a German book published in 2005 called Das Buch von Rostock or the Book of the Aerostork, which (laughs) apparently, according to the review, recounts and summarizes 24 known instances from the last few hundred years. I have not gotten a copy of the book, but I am literally starting my German lessons this week, and I am committed to learning German so that I can read this book and confirm some more on that in a future episode. That's definitely why (laughs) I signed up for German lessons and not because I'm married to a German and go to Germany a lot. No, I yeah, prefer no, it's, this quest. It's that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um the the professor who wrote this book is in his eighties and now retired. But uh Dr. Kinzelbach, if you're listening, you know, moin Vegetsinen, let's talk. Or not, but like uh big fan of your work. Looking forward to reading it. <laughs> um
0: you just have to DM him on Twitter. I know he's very active there. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I think he's going to be so flattered that you're the literally learning app. a whole language to read the arrow Stork.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we do know that the arrow Stork phenomenon has happened more than once, or at least I, I can say personally, I'm sure it's happened more than once because at least two have been reported at different times in recent history in Israel, and those were birds that had been speared in africa um there's also an old taxidermied specimen that is not the og arrow stork uh though i couldn't find details on like where and when it showed up i just know it's been stuffed and it is a second (laughs) different stork with the arrow in a different spot um i also found a 2022 news story about a stork spotted with an arrow through it in istanbul but twist uh, an expert said that that arrow looked like the type of recreational hunter would use. And he also said that it looked like the trajectory of that arrow would have interfered with the bird's air sacs. So it probably wouldn't have like put it in mortal danger, but it would have made it way harder for it to fly long distances. Um, so that made him think it was an incident that had occurred in Turkey. So uh, more more an instance of like domestic animal cruelty than uh, true fight of stroke. And of course, the possibility of that scenario kind of raises the question of how many supposed instances of this bird um, might not have actually been ones that made the journey from a far-off place after getting speared with an arrow. Uh, considering there has not been, to my knowledge, like a rigorous review of reported cases, but I'm going to hit up Dr. Kinzelbach and then I will... I will let you know what I find.
1: <laughs> I still give those birds props, even if they yeah. didn't fly oh long my distances. Like it's they went through it
3: wild. <laughs> yeah, I I spent a lot of time looking for like how how and it's, it's it's it seems like you know as can be the case for any animal, including humans. It is totally possible to get like fully impaled with something and have it just miss everything important. Um, That doesn't mean it's comfortable or fun, but, like, it happens. And uh, sort of the best answers I was able to find was, like, so many birds migrate and have done for as as long as humans have existed and been shooting arrows and spears at things. So just, like, statistically, there are going to be a certain number of birds who... uh, are injured but able to continue on to their destination um which like that does make sense so um, there's no like amazing reason that birds are able to do this there are probably many who in fact are not
0: see i'm thinking this is all just like a plot by party city to sell more of those like arrow through <laughs> the head things you know they somebody at party <laughs> well city, they're sponsoring this fact. yeah, yeah. At party city they have That's a time machine You know, they're really committed
1: to the bit. Well, at least Rachel could be the Aero Stork for Halloween using one of those (laughs) props. That's
3: true. That's actually possible. That is Mm -hmm. a really great thought. Thank you for that. Um, Glad
1: for this brainstorm.
3: (laughs) So we now know, just to wrap this up, that the Stork's 4,000 mile or so round trip migration is actually pretty chill as far as bird migrations go. The Arctic Tern has the uh, longest... Uh, yearly migration because it literally flies from the Arctic Circle to the Antarctic Circle. So, like, you can't go any farther um, unless it goes to the moon. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Stretch goal. Um, yeah. So, it flies there and back every year, which is nearly 19,000 miles as a round trip. Um, absolutely wild. Good for them. Um, in 2022, researchers reported what could be the longest nonstop journey for a migratory bird, which was a five month old bar-tailed godwit, um, made it all the way from Alaska to Tasmania, which is about 8,500 miles in just 11 days. And according to the little solar-powered GPS it was carrying, it did not stop. Such a long way for a little guy. Um, But that brings me just to say that we now have uh, actual ways of tracking where birds go. You know, uh, scientists tag them either with, um, you know, inert little tags that they just record like ah, oh, we saw this tag again x months later x miles away uh, but we also have little tiny gps trackers now so they can literally uh follow a bird's path and that's really good because bird migrations remain fairly mysterious in that like it's still an open question how birds know where to migrate you know why they go exactly where they go. And there are some birds where their migrations themselves are still kind of mysterious. So we've come a long way since maybe they're all at the bottom of the lake. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's still a lot uh, we have yet to learn. And uh, I I love this intrepid creature from <laughs> uh, the 1800s for um, really... Really changing the game, really, really changing the conversation and getting us on the right track <laughs>
1: truly like should we all get tattoos? <laughs> I Aero-Stork? honestly
3: I think it would be a really good tattoo, and I have thought about it, so maybe oh you're one step ahead. the band oh there you go <laughs> um that's fantastic. I love it and you know I <laughs> I'm sure I learned T I L. Yeah, I am. I am
1: podcast lived up to its name.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I love to hear it. Um, And, you know, I will say that um, as many times as I asked Oliver to uh, slowly pronounce the word for me, you know, don't don't come for me. He's already going to give me a hard time. (laughs) And like I said, I literally start German classes in a few days. So the next time I talk about this dang bird. I'm gonna be. It's just gonna roll off the tongue. Yeah, putting on like all
1: German notoriously does rolls
3: right off yeah, the tongue, just like chocolate. Yeah. Oh. Wow, amazing! Movie language, I would say. No. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and then be back with one more fact.
0: Whether you're a hardcore enthusiast or just a person who goes, that's a good looking car, (laughs) check out The Big Three, available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can watch the full videos at Donut Podcasts on YouTube. Okay, we're
3: back. And Rachel Gross, please tell us about eggs eggs like
1: the kind (laughs) that we make not the kind that you eat although you could um so okay this was like the wildest thing i learned in a whole book about vaginas which is saying Mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. yeah Um, so i don't know about you guys but i remember learning in sex ed and biology class um this single fact like over and over again and it was that if you're a person with female anatomy, you are born with all the eggs you'll ever have.
3: Right. And, and they just like, sit in there getting older and dusty. Right. That was the subtext of that
1: eggs. Yep. yep. Until you get menopause and that's all over, you're no longer considered a person or a woman. And it's that's the end. <laughs> um, that's the subtext. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess more specifically, they... They being science had found that when you're a fetus in the uterus and you're about five months, you actually have your peak number of eggs, 7 million eggs, and they degenerate very quickly. So when you're born, you only have 2 million. And then every year you're just losing eggs. They're basically programmed to die um, and to uh, not ovulate except for the lucky one every month for most of us. Um, So... It was crazy for me to find out that this kind of fact that everyone knows, actually no one knew until 1950. Um, and it was this Oxford anatomist named Sir Solly Zuckerberg, who was like, all right, there's a huge debate in the field over whether uh, women make eggs throughout their lifetime, or whether they're born with all the eggs that are ever have, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to figure it out. And he did a huge lit review. Um, he also did some really gruesome experiments where he put ovarian tissue into the eyes of monkeys so that he could huh. see yeah, because he could like look into the eye sockets and see if the ovaries were doing their function and taking root without their nerve supply. And they did. Um, so there was a growing like field of realizing that gonads and glands, the kind of uh organs that make hormones that support many other organs, uh can be put anywhere in the body. Uh, so, there were also experiments with roosters where they would remove a testes and they would see like its, quote, like masculine traits, like kind of disappear. And then they would add it back and they would see it grow its waddle and start strutting again and like going for the females. And that proved that you could just kind of remove this male essence or put it back in anywhere in the body to them. So, which then
3: led to a bunch of dudes trying to shove uh like monkey and like goat testicles into into ball sacks just to be like it'll just give you some extra vim and vigor (laughs) I mean (laughs) why not like could only
1: help right yeah uh yeah I mean I I honestly think that that the like uh the the gonad huckster phase (laughs) is kind of interrelated with uh the ovary stuff I'm going to talk about so I'm glad you brought that up um so, right. So, 1951, um, this British scientist, like, speaks before the academy and he says, like, listen, guys, I've read every single study out there and I can tell you definitively that all the eggs are created before birth. You can never have any more eggs. That's it. Um, and nobody has questioned it in the past, like, 70 years. Um, wow. And so that's how we got that number. And um, <laughs> it could you use a little reconsidering? This, uh, this and,
0: man did a literature review
1: and was like, "Well, I figured it out." And he put some <laughs> ovaries into eye sockets as well. Yeah, what, so you know, what he got, is that? <laughs> he was very influential, and like, I mean, I have my own kind of thoughts on this. I I think that there seems to be this long-standing divide between how we treat like male and female organs, and I think uh, scientists never question the fact that. Uh, men, people with male anatomy, make 1500 new sperm every time they breathe. And those are very similar germ cells um, to egg cells in some ways, like that they can be regenerated all the time. And that's just like a natural ability of the male body. But when it comes to the female body, like Rachel was saying, there's this idea that things degenerate over time, and that things are kind of Passively. As, you, as
3: you go from maiden to mother to crone. <laughs>
1: yeah, the, the arc we <laughs> all
3: term,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Right. The, there's like an unwomaning that happens. That was like the terms in this time um, wow. to describe menopause. Yeah. Very very offensive. Yeah. Um so so that's how this idea came about. Um it was challenged in the past 20 years or so, and uh the way I'd like to take you through that is through chickens because this was the most unexpected part of the journey for me. Um, I did not know chickens were so fascinating. Maybe you two did. But uh, chickens have one ovary. They are born with two, but the right one stays undeveloped and the left one grows to enormous uh, proportions. It basically is like the size of the palm of your hand. And it's kind of like a stalk of cherry tomatoes. Um, So it has all the eggs in it and you can see each one growing in a different stage. So um, scientists will label them like F1, F2, F3. And it's an incredibly important like reproductive science model because it's like the clearest example of ovulation. You can see the eggs at all different stages of growing and dying. Um, but a crazy thing that chicken scientists know that no one else really does is that if you remove a chicken ovary, so remember there are all those experiments removing and replacing gonads in chickens and roosters. Um, It will actually grow back entirely, eggs and all. Um, Sometimes it will even grow back into a testes, uh, which is wild, um, and will produce male-like characteristics, even though usually it can't father children. Um, But so chicken scientists know that these gonads are super regenerative and like dynamic. Um, But it's it's never applied to humans, because chicken scientists and human scientists don't really talk much. Um, (laughs) However. A real shame. Clearly, we're missing a lot. Um, (laughs) So there are two scientists, ovary scientists, who started in in chickens, who ended up being the ones to question Sir Solly's pronouncement. And uh, one of them was, his name is John Tilly. He's an ovarian scientist. He's working at Mass General Hospital in, like, the 2000s. And he's studying what happens when, uh, when people with cancer get chemo that is known to kill germ cells. So they're basically... Um, they're basically spraying ovaries with chemo drugs, um, in the lab and they found something weird, which is that the ovaries did lose a lot of eggs, eggs died off, but then they started to climb back up, which they didn't think should be possible. Um, and so the numbers were off. It was as if like less eggs were dying than they knew were dying. Um, so they could have said, like, the math must be off, there must be another explanation. But because they had this sense that there was potential regeneration that no one else in the field believed was possible, they actually kept questioning it, kept looking at the numbers, and finally concluded that what the rest of the field thought was impossible must be true, that these eggs, that these ovaries must be making new eggs that were making up for the lost ones. Wow. Um, Wow. Yeah. And this was probably the most controversial paper in the entire field of ovarian biology, if you can believe it. Um, It was both the fact, like both the substance and the form of the message. The substance was like, hey, this foundational fact, literally the first line of every <laughs> study for the past like 50 years is wrong. And therefore like many people's careers are based on this false foundation. Um, and then there was, the message itself. So this this scientist, John Tilly, he's very charismatic. He's kind of not your typical scientist. He has like used car salesman vibes. Oh. um he's very. <laughs> he literally uses the word like unequivocally. This is the discovery of the century. Okay, and, you know yeah. he's,
3: I can oh. I can see that chafing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> I mean, literally, other scientists
1: tell me now, like it wasn't even the science that people were skeptical of. It was the voice that was delivering it um and the kind of confidence that this would have crazy consequences for women that it could allow women to have babies much much later that it could stave off menopause um that it could be used to create like um new forms of ibf and yeah so so As you know, like most scientists are super circumspect when they talk to reporters, they never make big claims. They're always like caveating everything. And John was just like, yep, this is going (laughs) to revolutionize birth. And like we used to think that women were old when their ovaries stopped working. But it turns out that their ovaries are not the limiting factor. We can change that. And so we can extend your healthy lifespan. Um, So there were like 10 years in there where this was just like an untouchable nuclear topic. Uh, until more and more papers started piling up that were showing, yeah, this is the case in mice and zebrafish and giraffes. Um, and some of those early critics of Tilly and his lab, um, including uh, Dory Woods, who was, came from the same chicken lab and ended up being kind of the key to this lab. Um, some of the critics ended up coming to the lab, seeing these new aches being made and seeing evidence of it, Uh, And changing their mind and becoming collaborators, which is also pretty crazy. Um,
0: I love it. It's like this beautiful science, like, success story, even though John Tilly kind of sounds like a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's a lot. Sometimes it takes a really out-of-the-box scientist to do this stuff. Yeah. Um, And I mean, you know, science is self-correcting and self critiquing mm-hmm. and i think it's kind of it's kind of like when you have eczema or an immune disorder and your immune system is really trying to do the right thing to protect you but goes a little overboard mm-hmm. it seems like that's what the field did to him um like it, there were good reasons to be skeptical right. and critical but because they were so against this possibility it took like at least 10 years and it's just now being um being added to reproductive textbooks that basically wow. say, like, we are pretty sure there are stem cells in human ovaries. Mm. We think it's possible they're making new eggs. No one knows for sure. Um, and, and that is kind of how science progresses is slowly and cautiously, step by step. But to me, this is, it's more than the tech that it could spawn in the future, which I think we're so really far away from. Um, and there's a lot of controversies involved. The idea of trying to stave off or um, or oh, pushback menopause for one is like really gets a lot of feminist hackles up because of this uh. idea that menopause shouldn't be a disease it's a natural phase of life all those things are true um but to me it just makes me like imagine my body differently because i think we have been taught about the degenerating uh concept and that it's just like a countdown until menopause and like that you run out of eggs and your ovaries wither away and that's like this is like the worst language possible but i think that was my subtext in my head yeah Um, totally
3: yeah and
1: now i'm like no these aren't like shriveling uh uh raisins they are rechargeable batteries (laughs) and most likely they are like however slowly however much they are regenerating like something is happening in there and there are like processes that we haven't explored yet and i think that's really cool
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's the fascinating part of molecular biology. Like, you might think, like, oh, wow, we've gotten, you know, so much information. We've, like, barely touched the surface of, like, what's actually going on at, like, a cellular level or, like, at a tissue level or anything like that. Like, there's all these new discoveries all the time. So, I don't know. I, I like that, you know, someone decided to kind of challenge the
1: heterodoxy of, like, all this um, that is actually exactly how he frames it. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Maybe we
0: would be friends. I don't know. <laughs>
1: yeah, It's very friendly, yes. I mean, I, to your point about the discoveries being made all the time, the other crazy thing to me is that like an ovary... Like you think of it as a basket of eggs. it's mm-hmm. kind of what the term comes from. But it's got all this tissue in it. Like I always think of it as like chewed up bubble gum for some reason. <laughs> cause it's very pink in my head. So all this like connective tissue that the eggs and the follicles are embedded in. And we don't know what all those cells are and what they're doing. Right. They're totally. probably like communicating. They're probably really important. But we have no idea because we really latched onto the eggs because that's what we cared about. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, and also just like you know, organs that are involved in reproduction more broadly, like the focus has been so squarely on their role in making babies. And first of all, a lot of the science on their role making babies has been shoddy historically. But then it's just also like, you know, I bet that these organs that are in someone's body for their whole life probably have larger, uh, Impacts on their bodily function than just sometimes you get pregnant, right? A baby happens.
1: Could not have said that better myself. Like, I mean, even I like forget that the ovaries don't just have eggs, they're producing estrogen that literally supports like your brain and your bones and your blood. And like, give them more credit, they're not just reproductive organs.
3: Yeah, well, and you know what else I was thinking of, um, as you were starting the fact was. That, like, it's so recent that it, like, happened during my career as a science journalist, really, that people started talking about the very concept that maybe sperm got less good when you get old, too. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. That's such a good point. And like, it why ma- it made people so mad. <laughs> right. Like, how dare you? Everyone knows that men of any age can father a child. And it's like, yes, yes. Yes, that's true. But also, when your joints are all falling apart and your hair is falling out, and like but your sperm
0: are perfect, like,
3: <laughs> why do you think that your sperm would be like really good at the thing that they do? Yes, <laughs> it's like there's a force field to logic when
1: you have these like really deeply embedded like gender constructs come in, and there's like resistance to poking holes in the paradigm. It's yeah. crazy.
3: No, and the fact that like it was, it, there was so much uproar. I remember because I covered it and wrote about it and people sent me really mm-hmm. angry emails. And there was so much like, that is so offensive to say, given that so many older men are fathers. and like, what are you implying about their children? And I'm like, women who are... Thirty-five literally are called geriatric, pregnancy. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're Have worried you... about me offending a seventy-year-old who just had a kid? I'm sorry. Who's probably doing great? Yeah, and going his, well and, for them. And his kid is probably fine. We're just right. talking about sperm quality. General, yeah, just the biology.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the other thing that people get offended about or resistant to is making these really obvious connections to other animals. So, like, the first study on this was mm -hmm. in mice, which is naturally how it goes. And, like, yeah, you absolutely have to confirm and do more studies. But they were like, "Um, humans are not mice, except at Disneyland. Like, that was a literal quote from a researcher. And it's like, well, if you're seeing that more and more other animals have this happening, you could at least consider that maybe it's happening in humans. Like, we're not, like, just this special, unique exception from all other animals.
3: Yeah, that's such a good point because I think, you know, there are so many over the top headlines around research that's in rodents. And like, so it's become a real trope to be like, you know, parentheses in mice, like, don't take that headline seriously. Right. It's just a rodent study, which is definitely true. But then also, I think you make a great point that it can easily become like a straw man argument to be like, don't listen to anything this person is saying it's absurd to think that this thing that happens in mice would happen in humans like no that is it's the very obvious first step right (laughs) right right the
0: issue is that everything is so black and white right like whether it is like oh yeah the ovaries they have to be withering away or oh the mice studies are total bs you know like we we take like a new piece of information and then we take it to its like very end conclusion yeah humans are really bad at (laughs) nuance
1: or we just try to slot it into our existing paradigm and if it's like making the whole like jenga game fall apart then we're just like no (laughs) right right and people being like
3: people like the the idea that like the takeaway from ovaries probably keep making eggs is like so you can maybe not get old by not going through menopause it's like i don't know if that's
1: you, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's why the putting the goat goat testicles into your own testicles is relevant like there's right. always gonna be with some new information there's always gonna be this strain of like the huckster coming out Keep of the aisle right well maybe this <laughs> is the elixir of life well maybe this one is it so definitely be skeptical of that
0: yeah I don't know periods are horrible I think i Give me the menopause. I know it's horrible. Give me the like, menopause. But you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know if I want more eggs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's fair. Maybe more eggs not for everyone. Yeah. And, and we should just be able to choose and decide that for ourselves. Just exactly. Like you can choose an IUD that gets rid of your period It for would some simply people. be great to know, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to know the basics of my body. Just like the very basic operating manual. That's all I'm asking here.
3: Yeah. <laughs> the, when I was writing my book and I, well, it was before I wrote my book, but not long before when I really sat down and like read the step-by-step mechanics of how eggs are released. And I was like, what the f-? Yeah. Nobody, Nobody told me this. Yep. No. And it, and I... was, <laughs> busting through there like the Kool-Aid man. And that's fine. <laughs> but like, that was an incredible why life. didn't I know that? Right, it's incredibly like violent and competitive, and the eggs like fight to the death. And I'm yeah, like, So and, why is a and female and the body egg castle- like goes out there? It like exits, and then the the little the little fingers of the fallopian tube are like, come back, come back. Yes, That's, it's incredibly complicated. Oh my god, like an astronaut is like untethered from the spaceship, yeah, and then like, like rope back, like in the movie Gravity. Exactly. Like, every like- time we ovulate. <laughs> Why is this not
0: the amazing
1: drama that we want to learn? Like,
0: yeah, there's a little Sandra Bullock inside everyone. (laughs) Yeah, once a
1: month she comes out,
0: (laughs) and your body
3: can always make more, and that's beautiful, Uh, (laughs) amazing. So, what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? I what a what a group of winners! (laughs) I have to say. I would say they flew to the moon and back today.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that they all kind of like tied back together. Like,
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> real synergy. Um, I, I really, I, I can't pick between the two of you. They were both really good. Um, we could call it a tie this week. It's been a while since we had a tie. We just sure. all brought our A game. <laughs> we really did. I was like, dang. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm just, I'm just glad if I held up with you too. I'm still thinking about the fact that like birds just disappeared for half the year, and and everyone was just like
3: birds, the birds. yeah. Where that just makes they me so happy. Gone, like,
1: cause, cause they weren't scrolling Instagram. So maybe like all winter, they're just thinking about the birds and like dreaming are... about them.
3: What? Okay, one more side before we before we close out is that one thing from the um the historical like belief that swallows hibernated under like ponds there would be all of these um references to like you know men who are are trawling for fish if they don't know any better can sometimes try to catch the hibernating birds um but the birds will Die once you interrupt their hibernation and make really bad meat. And I'm like, those birds were bad meat because you found a rotting bird crest at the bottom of the place. <laughs> or some other rotting animal, who knows what. But I love that history. line of logic. I really do.
1: <laughs> That's, That's the type
3: of really creativity. made thinking things I want so more much more
1: complicated
0: that they to be. <laughs> exactly. What, what, um, us, though? today are we learning in science that people are going to be like, I can't oh. believe that they thought that this oh. you know it's on the
3: same level as the moon birds i can't i you know i can't wait knowing that i will never know yep i still can't wait i feel like i've been
1: seeing a lot because of the circles that rachel and i are in a lot of headlines are like actually snakes have clitorises and like have you seen the dolphin clitoris so it is my (laughs) sincere hope that 50 years from now people be like wow they just thought snakes just didn't have a clitoris that they just went around not enjoying themselves throughout their whole life that's sad like how did no one ask this question
3: (laughs) amazing listeners uh definitely check out vagina obscura everywhere you get your books
1: and Pairs incredibly with been there, done that, like a fine wine. <laughs> Just
0: it's saying,
3: true. Two great taste that tastes that taste great together, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and are loomy as hell. Yeah, you can or, re- you can read my bad tweets
3: if you want. <laughs> I will. I will continue to do so. Thank you. <laughs> The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, along with Jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.